Hello, my name is Daniel Nenny, founder of SemiWiki, the open forum for semiconductor professionals. Welcome to the Semiconductor Insiders podcast series. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover, please post it on semiwiki.com and we'll get right to it. Today, we're going to be talking about chiplets, and we have a panel of people. Uh, first, we'd like to do some introductions before we get into the topic. Uh, Tony, can you introduce yourself, please? Sure. My name is Tony Mastriani. I'm with Siemens EDA, and uh, I'm responsible for uh, driving our advanced packaging roadmap. Prior to that, I was at eSilicon for about 18 years, and uh, most of my career, I've been uh, involved in IC design. But in the last couple of years at eSilicon, we started getting involved in two and a half D designs. So for the last seven years or so, that's been my area of focus and uh, really trying to to focus on advanced packaging, which uh, does include a lot of uh, IC-centric technologies and, and methodologies. Great. Right, thank you, Tony. Craig? I'm Craig Bishop. I'm CTO at DECA Technologies. And DECA is an advanced packaging technology provider. Specifically, we have our M-series fan-out technology, and then the technology I've spent, oh, probably more than the last 10 years of my life on is adaptive patterning. And that's where we use real-time mass lithography to create an optimized pattern for every chip on the fly. Solve a lot of the challenges with two-and-a-half and chiplet integration. Thank you, Craig. Uh, Safe? Um, uh, thank you. Um... My name is Saif Alam. I'm the VP of Engineering at Movellus. Uh, prior to Movellus, I was at uh, AMD for 16 years. And um, during that time, my focus was really large SOC designs um, and then uh, 3D stacks. So the last project was the MI300 chip, which was uh, basically goes into Lawrence Liverborn Labs. Um, and um, it, it actually has the latest uh, kind of packaging technologies and, and 3D stack. And prior to that, I was at Intel for 11 years, working on um, SOC design, uh, mainly for CPU design. Thank you, Safe. So let's start out with an easy question. Why do we need chiplets? And more specifically, who needs chiplets? Uh, Tony? Why do we need chiplets? Good question. Well, I'm sure we've all heard about Moore's Law, where we're starting to get diminishing returns in um, you know, the lower cost and higher performance and lower power uh, for advanced uh, ASIC technologies. So we're, we're not quite there, but we're very close to hitting that wall. So uh, designing an advanced node ICs is a very expensive proposition. And um, to so, so one of the main motivations uh, to extend Moore's law, if you will, is to break uh, those chips into different uh, multiple chips. And there's many advantages of doing that. Um, what's enabling really the ability to do that is the, some of the advanced packaging technologies. So now we can integrate multiple chips in a package uh, with a little bit of overhead, but you get the, the benefits of uh, being able to decompose uh, what was limited to a large chip into multiple chips. So by doing smaller chips, you can do um, lower cost because you'll have higher yields. Um, you can also take advantages of different technologies 
um, that are uh, better applicable for different parts of your design. For example, you can mix and match RF and um, analog design and advanced process nodes and, and, and not so advanced process nodes. And also you have the ability to have a much smaller form factor because you're, you're integrating uh, multiple chips within a package as opposed to on a board. So those are some of the key benefits um, in, into doing chiplet-based designs. And in terms of the applications, it, it really applies to uh, many different markets. And, uh, you know, I can let one of the other panelists maybe talk a little bit more about that uh, if they have some thoughts on, on who might uh, use these triplets. Yeah, Craig. Maybe in broad strokes, I could say right now, if you have more than reticle size uh, die, or if you're looking to interface with HDMI memory, you're probably looking at chiplets. But uh, like we talked about in our panel at DAC earlier, uh, Mark Kummerle actually uh, said this one, that if you can stay under a reticle, do it. Because there's a there's a big cost to going to chiplets and there's some overhead and it's more complicated design. But when you need it, you need it and there's no other option. And as Tony said, there are also a lot of benefits that come with it. And I, I sometimes I come from a software background a long time ago, and I like to talk about uh, in software world, we also had a transition from monolithic to what they call microservices. And a big part of that is not just breaking up, uh, breaking up the large you know, engineering effort, but also your ability to ship on different schedules. So you have different teams working on separate tapouts, you have different intercepts you're actually able to decompose what was once a monolithic project into separate programs, separately operating teams. So it's not only a technological advantage, but it's a design organizational advantage uh, once you get there. And right now the big design houses are moving that way because they already hit those problems, but eventually it will spread further. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Safe, can you, Give us your perspective. Uh, you have a, a broad experience with uh, Intel and AMD. Why do we need chiplets? Sure. Um, so there was a time when um, process shrink was the main driver for product uh, performance and innovation. And um, and so what you did is you kind of moved to the next mm -hmm. process and then you got more performance and, and the product became better. Uh, but this is no longer the case uh, since 2006 uh, because the price per transistor did not scale down with uh, process technology. So um, what designers are doing now is they're turning to a lower cost option. Um, and um, this is because they can now mix and match different tech nodes and reduce the overall cost. So with chiplets, yield is higher because your die size is smaller. And in some cases like HPC, um, designers just can't fit all the functionality in, into one reticle. So they are forced to um, go use a chiplet-based approach. Um, and, and as Craig was saying that, you know, there is some trade-off in terms of what is the size that makes sense for a chiplet and when do you want to, uh, instead of a heterogeneous system, do you just want a monolithic system? Um, the other thing with chiplets or, is that it allows for quicker turnaround time lower NRE costs and potentially, you know, if we have an ecosystem of different type of chiplets available, 
Uh, and it, to get there, there's a lot of work involved, obviously, but um, then we can kind of pick and choose what chiplets we want and assemble chips. I mean, there's been a desire for a very long time to have some kind of Lego block chip solution. And I don't think we're there yet, but there's a lot of uh, you know progress in that area. Great. Tony, um, what are the general considerations or the implications for 2.5D and uh, die-to-die technologies? Okay, so uh, again, deciding whether or not, um, again, to Mark's point in absentia, if, if you can fit your entire chip in a die, that's probably going to be the most prudent way to go. But assuming that you've done that analysis and, and you you can determine there's advantages of disaggregating in, into a uh, system and package with multiple chips, um, the, the current state-of-the-art technology really is um, two and a half D and the, and the term two and a half D uh, really uh, I, I think what initiated that that whole technology is is uh, HBM memory a uh, high bandwidth memory which is actually a, a, a stacked die memory die and um, you know uh, Samsung SK Hynix Micron they, they developed these and this gives you a tremendous amount of bandwidth of, of memory uh, right now, they're building up to 16 stacks, so you can get up to, I think, 32 megabits of memory per HBM die, and and that can be integrated uh, with other chips or chiplets uh, in the package. So so that's really what kind of started the whole thing. And the, and the term two and a half D is you're mixing a a a, a, a single ASIC with a 3D ASIC, uh, those HBM memories. So that the term kind of stuck, but it's more of a marketing terms. Uh, essentially, two and a half D is you're integrating multiple chiplets, and it could be two or 3D chiplets, um, on typically a silicon interposer, although it could be an organic interposer as well. So technology choice, uh, 3D is an option, but that's a little bit further out. So it's, um, if, if you're looking at you know, current technology, uh, there are some applications where um, 3D is applicable for, for sensor type and, and very specialized processor where you're, you're basically building those chips to, to plug together. So the technology is there, but the tools typically are not there. Uh, we do have most of the tools in place for 2.5D. So um, if, if you need to, to go that route, um, you know, uh, two and a half D uh, is is the appropriate choice, and the only um, you know there's many different packaging technologies there. It largely comes down to cost versus performance. Uh, today, the silicon interposer technologies uh, provide a little bit more performance and density, um, and the organics give you a lower cost, slightly less uh, performance. But but that is changing, and and um, I think the gap between the performance uh, is is closing and and the the cost is still quite attractive. There are some also physical limitations in how large you can build a silicon interposer. Uh, basically, you can go to up to three x reticle size on the side, but that is a practical limitation. If you go with an organic interposer, you can do much larger substrates. So there's a lot of different factors that need to be considered in picking a pack package technology in how you partition your system into chiplets. 
Um, and um, uh, another advantage is you, you do have product flexibilities in, in terms of how you configure your product. So you may have different product variants where rather than building separate chips, monolithic chips for each of those product variants, you can actually assemble a different subset of chiplets and uh, create different product SKUs. And uh, the, the incremental cost of doing a, a, an additional package design to integrate those packages considerably less than doing a full-blown custom ASIC. Yeah, interesting. Craig, do you have comments? I'd say, first off, I would actually say HBM is probably the most successful single chiplet so far in terms of design wins and popularity in shipping products. I think by the definition of chiplet, that's probably the most successful so far, um, including in you know the, the dream of being able to put things together like Lego blocks. Now, in terms of considerations for if you're starting a chiplet design, I would say one thing that's quite a bit different and goes all the way to the silicon architect at the beginning of the program is you have to involve your advanced packaging provider or manufacturer as early in the project as possible. And this is unlike, you know, chip designs of 20 years ago and probably still unlike more recent designs where oftentimes you will have a single source and a single technology for the 2.5D solution you're using to put these chiplets together. And that will have you know, very specific physical design considerations, even electrical design considerations. And it's unlike a organic substrate, uh, you may not have multiple suppliers available. So you're not only looking at design considerations early on, but supply chain and capacity availability. And I mean, it's reported right now that there are capacity limitations for silicon interposer out of TSMC, for example. And if you're looking to launch a product on that supply chain, you have to be aware very early on. So go, going beyond that, I would say first, you have to be aware of your supply chain, but then second, uh, especially at the larger companies, you're going to be involving your package of design team much earlier on. Uh, you know, typically they've been in a separate building. You probably talk to them midway or at the end of your project. Uh, they're going to be sitting next to you once you start going chiplets because it's not only the on die interfaces and implementing the die to die standards like UCI or Bo, but the whole system interplay. How do you test? Uh, what stage do you test? So it really actually requires a much more integrated effort across all the teams. Great. So say, uh, in your opinion, what are the general considerations or implications for 2.5D and die-to-die -die technology? Uh, sure. So um, the first thing is, I think there's different terminology for 2.5D you know, and 3D, what it means. So from my perspective, um, Two and a half D is when you have a passive device connecting to active device. And 3D is when you have two active devices stacked on top of each other, right? So that's that's how I kind of classify what two and a half D and 3D are. Now, in terms of considerations for two and a half D, um, there's actually a, a number of different things. Uh, the first thing is, um, you know, how do you do timing across this? Uh, how do you actually, do you assume that these different dyes have, you know, very extreme corners like slow, slow, fast, fast? If you do, then you're going to 
pretty much use up an entire cycle just for margining. Um, and then the other question is, you know, um, in terms of IREM, how do you do it across these interfaces? Um, and um, and then basically, how do is there uh, self and is there a coupling between the chiplets? How is that modeled? So there's a lot of details in terms of how to verify um, the entire system. So even like you know functional verification, you you need a a netlist that is um, has the entire all the chiplets in the entire system uh, to actually be effective in doing this this as well. Um, so and then there, there's other parts like if you um, have multiple chiplets, um, does it use the same protocol? Um, is it you know a bunch of wires? Is it uh, UCIE? Is it some proprietary interface? What's the bump pitch, right? Uh, what is the the packaging technology used? Um, is it coos? Is it you know fan out wafer level packaging? Is it Interposer. So there's a lot of different questions in terms of uh, how you put these chiplets together. Next question. Um, so how are people designing two and a half D today? Uh, Tony, do you want to start with that one? Sure. That's that's an excellent question. Um, the short answer is very carefully, <laughs> but um, the the challenge in two and a half D design is it, it really, you're putting multiple chips together. So there's many challenges in doing that. You know, how, how do you test them, you know, for production tests? You have to worry about timing, as Safe previously mentioned. Uh, some of that is addressed using the die-to-die -die interfaces, and those are kind of internal SERTIS-type interfaces that address that. You have to worry about thermal and thermal coupling between the chiplets. When you when you put multiple ASICs on a silicon interposer or organic interposer, you have to worry about, um, you know, these are very large interposers, so you have to worry about warpage. So 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 there's reliability issues. So you're you're talking about um, really combining a lot of different um, design methodologies and tools, uh, it, it really includes, you know, starting from the system level where you're decomposing the, the system uh, architects need to get involved in figuring out how to split up the chiplets. Um, you know, they're going to be doing the functional verification and creating those top level net lists that stitch the chiplets together. Um, you certainly have the package engineers. They're going to be instrumental in picking the right packaging technologies, doing some of the floor planning, and doing some of the traditional package type analysis, uh, thermal and, and stress uh, analysis. Um, and traditionally, on the electrical side, they've done signal integrity analysis, which is appropriate for those high-speed die-to-die interfaces. Um, but you do have to worry about those parasitics because they're not um, necessarily, you know, they, they, they could be uh, silicon type interconnect and organic and, and, and both. So you need the right extraction tools to be able to come up with the, the right net list to, to be able to, to run that analysis. And um, so, so really, I, I would say the, the, the tool methodologies um, right now, uh, they're, they're kind of ad hoc because most of these tools do exist today, uh, but really what is lacking, and it, it's, it's starting to happen, but I would say it's still a work in progress, is you really need to put, uh, put together cohesive workflows with all these tools so they work together. 
and you know the the package world and the IC world are, are really coming together, and they've they've worked very differently, different terminologies, and different tools, different type of analysis. So, um, you know, I I, I think uh, HBMs uh, is becoming pretty pretty mature, uh, but you're really just you know you have very well defined interfaces and there's standards to do that, and um, you know that's straightforward. But once you start getting into more complex designs, um, right now, um, you know it it is really you are designing multiple chips that need to work together. And the reason for that, there really is no ecosystem. And arguably, the only chiplet that is available in the open market is an HBM memory. So I think that's straightforward. But if you're doing a custom two and a half D design. Uh, you're essentially doing multiple um, custom ASIC designs and designing those all to work together. And then you have to do the analysis to make sure that you look at all the, uh, you know, the uh, reliability effects, the thermal effects, the electrical effects, IR drop. I mean, it's, it's just a very complex problem. And, um, you know, there's there's a lot of work being done in industry to do that. And yeah, I think the very large companies are throwing a lot of people and a lot of resources on it. Uh, but, you know, as as the technology matures, I think those workflows will become better. The packaging technology is, is pretty mature. So that's been around for several years, driven initially by two and a half D. So that's in pretty good shape. You need the workflows, which is still a work work in progress. And then I think to get broader adoption, you you really need to have kind of an ecosystem of reusable chiplets. And um, the other thing is is standards for these different uh, um, kind of design kits. You have multiple design kits for package, system, thermal, and uh, just just getting all that information into a cohesive manner is is required. So a lot of it is being ad hoc, uh, being done ad hoc today with large, um, you know, multidiscipline design teams working together, and they're really building their own methodologies. Um, but again, I think for this to really take off, the EDA design, um, EDA companies will need to start having better integrated package system um, IC tools, uh, and and the the test methodologies exist, but you know they they need to be thought out up front and put into the individual die so that they can be tested together. And again, then the ecosystem to have common common uh, formats and uh, languages and ways of describing the information to support this ecosystem are, are necessary, as well as, you know, hopefully, um, you know, a, a, a standard set of uh, chiplet components that could be reusable. And that's where it's going to become a lot more economically feasible. And to that end, the CDX uh, Chiplet Design Exchange is a working group under OCP. And they're, the charter of that group really is to promote an ecosystem. So uh, I'm an active member in that uh, organization. We have EDA companies, we have foundries, OSATs, and we have designers. And the first thing we looked at was defining a common set of models uh, that would be delivered with a chiplet. Um, so think of this as uh, the um, design views or models uh, that would be required to be delivered with those little chips uh, to support the integration of that into a package. So we did write a white paper a couple of years ago, and we've defined a, a set of deliverables that we've recommended. 
And then we're also working on some, some newer formats to describe materials in a common language and even uh, assembly rules because you're dealing with multiple technologies, um, you know, different uh, chip technologies. So there, you have to make sure all these rules are compatible so that they can uh, connect to each other, uh, as well as the, you know, whoever's doing the assembly, you know, that, that so, so it does require, um, you know, those, those assembly rules to be defined in a concise manner. So what we're currently working on the CDX group is also coming up with a standard format so we can describe those, um, uh, assembly rules in, in a consistent, reusable language. And we think that'll help uh, to make it a little bit easier for people to adopt these technologies. So right now, it's really the very large company with deep pockets that can afford to do this and, and devote a lot of uh, resources and methodology and tools, as well as people, because you're doing multiple chip designs and uh, uh, but and, and until we get this you know ecosystem further along uh, it's going to be a, a, a challenge for many smaller companies uh, to leverage this technology so craig how are you seeing people design two and a half d today sure i'd agree with tony that generally a lot of the workflows today are still ad hoc and i'd attribute some of that maybe to the fact that we're at a transitional moment for package design where the worlds of EL5 style EDA and package EDA are colliding. And if you look at the, at the history of it, it's kind of a two parallel exponential curve. Well, well, exponential curves that have diverged for a couple decades now. So, you know, back in the early eighties on the VLSI design side, you had, we crossed the point where manual physical design wasn't even feasible, even by the early eighties where every, everything physical had to be fully automated. You know, you're routing, placing millions of blocks, billions of wires now. Versus if you look at the curve for the density of PCB and many of the most popular package design tools today still come out of PCB lineage. There's still the same tools you would use to design, you know, a motherboard or an iPhone motherboard versus a, a chip design itself. And if you look at the curves of density, they're in a very different spot. And it's only recently that packaging density has hit the point, the same point where physical design automation took over in the LSI world four decades ago. So I think we're going to see a lot more VLSI style flows take hold in the advanced packaging and two and a half D space. And really there's not a lot of option because these designs are going well beyond the capabilities of some of these uh, PCB lineage tools in cases. For example, uh, Tony mentioned, you know, 3.5 reticle limits were with organic fan out, and especially at DECA, we have a 600 millimeter square uh, fan out format. We're looking at uh, interposers that are much larger than several reticles. And in that case, you have hundreds of thousands of nets. And traditional package style uh, design flows they, without the benefit of hierarchical design or other VLSI automation, they just don't cut it anymore. And so that's on the tooling side, but organizationally, this is also a challenge because now you have inside companies, different teams asking, well, I still have a substrate. I still have a traditional organic substrate. So my package design team, they seem to own that. And I still need my VLSI EDA teams to design my chiplets themselves, and now I meet in the middle here, 
And if it's a silicon interposer, well, that looks like a chip. So I know which team will design that. But if it's a RDL or some other advanced technology, not cleanly in those buckets, well, then now I have an organizational issue of whose responsibility is that? And today it's a little bit mixed because the, the aspects actually influence both teams. You know, some choices you make that uh, positively influence performance for your triplet itself may have negative impl implications for package reliability or long-term board level reliability, things like that. So that flow today, I, I would say is still very ad hoc, but as Tony mentioned, uh, the efforts to standardize the design kits for this are very important. And I think today the foundries do a very good job of this because coming out of the world of providing those kits for their uh, you know, three nanometer front-end customers, they already have a, a head start on doing this. But the traditional packaging uh, manufacturing assembly providers are a little bit lagging on this. And that's not anything bad, it's just a, a fact of the, the history of the tooling in the space. And this transitioning is happening, I, I would say faster than people expected it to. So uh, we're in a place where we have to catch up a little bit. Chase, how are people designing 2.5D today? Um, sure. So um, so the first uh, item here is um, there needs to be some kind of standardized design kits, um, as both uh, Tony and, and Craig were mentioning. Um, and so that, you know, we're talking the same language uh, when 2.5D is actually done. Um, so this is actually a very important piece. There are different pieces in place, but the entire end-to-end um, -end design system for 2.5D is far from being, uh, you know, complete. Now, um, how do how are people designing 2.5D? Well, right now they um, pick uh, one of pretty much three different interface protocols. So they choose a bunch of wires. Um, a number of uh, SOC designs use um, propriety interfaces, and then there's also some push to get to go to UCIE, and that's pushed by AMD and, and, and uh, other companies, I believe Intel as well. So the question, the first question is, you know, how do you kind of select between the three? Um, so one consideration is the number of interface bits uh, and power and timing associated with these interfaces. So if we take UCIE, for instance, for a one terabyte per second interface, it consumes about 4.8 watts. A uh, bunch of wires actually consumes twice as much. Um, and there's non-standard interfaces that consume about half as much as UCIE, like 1.5 to 2, 2 watts. So the, the question, first question is like, what is your interface? Uh, how many bits interface do you have? What are your power timing uh, considerations? Do you want to go with a bunch of wires, UCIE, or some proprietary, proprietary solution? So that, that's kind of one of the choices. Um, the other choice, obviously, is um, you know what is the packaging solution that you want? What kind of uh, uh, package are you going to have all these chiplets connect uh, to, together with? And as, um, as Craig was saying, and this is becoming important, um, the package team right now is in the center of these chiplets. 
uh, it's not uh, like it used to be that you had monolithic designs and then at the end of the design, you talk to the packaging team and, and they put everything together and then fab the chip. But now it's more integral where packaging is more central to the design and success of chiplets. So there's a lot more early engagement. Uh, there's also more activities that packaging teams are getting into that they didn't do in, in the past. So we, we talked about design st uh, standards. Uh, we talked about the interface. We talked about the importance of the packaging team. Um, and then the other part is, you know, what is your bump pitch? Because if you want to reuse your chiplets, uh, you know, between your own SOCs or if you plan on doing third or getting third party SOCs, you need to have the standard, right? So in terms of, you know, what is the interface? What is the bump pitch um, that, that you want? Um, and then what is your packaging strategy? So those are some of the challenges and things that people are working on and considering uh, when they select uh, what kind of chiplet uh, they will use. Oh, great. So we are in a very risk adverse industry and 2NFT design and chiplets do represent risk. Can you guys talk about a little bit about the risks involved here? And um, uh, safe, can you go first this time? Um, sure. So um, one of the there's a number of different risks. The first one is, um, you know, how do you do timing like uh, for across 3D stacks or two and a half D stacks? Um, usually what people do is they kind of um, they may do a paper and pencil exercise. Say, OK, this is the logic I have here. This is what I logic I have here. This is the the interface that happens, uh, the passive interposer that happens between this. They model it, they may spice it, or they have different methods of how they get confidence in terms of what the timing is between chiplets. The other part is kind of like IREM. So uh, you have IREM, you know, uh, mod, you know, analysis on each chiplet, but at the interface, what exactly happens? How you actually do that? Now there are some tools that do 3D IR models. Um, there are tools that do 3D like LVS, at least to make sure your bumps are connected correctly. Uh, but I, I see them as, you know, uh, trying to address specific problems rather than a generalized solution that you have 100% confidence on once you once you run it. Um, so so that's another thing. So the other part of it is functional verification, right? So functional verification, you need the netlist for all the chiplets and the top level, and you need to be able to perform tests on that. So you need a mechanism, and this may go back to what Tony and Craig were saying about um, a standardized design kit and unified methodology. Um, so a lot of these things are running in parallel. Uh, people are doing different things. Different companies are doing different strategies. Uh, the standards board is trying to aggregate that so there's one way of, you know, uh, that everyone speaks uh, to each other with. Um, and then each of the SOCs have their own kind of price performance and area trade-offs. And, and they're based on that, they're selecting their bump pitch and they're selecting, you know, what uh, interface to use, PCIe, a uh, bunch of wires or proprietary. So there's a lot of different variables here in order to make effective use of chiplets that can, you know, be plugged and played into different type of SOCs. All of these have to converge. Um, so, but I think the discussion is ongoing. I think we're pretty 
probably a, a ways off from uh, that happening where everything converges, but everyone has the same idea of what needs to happen going forward. At least that's what that's what I think. Craig, what are the risks? Sure, and I, I think Safe covered all the, the technical risks quite well, including you know the verification risks and the really you're verifying not just one chip at a time, you're verifying this whole collection of chips altogether, which is a lot more complicated. And if I have my my deck of marketing hat on, I'm I'm supposed to tell you that yes, this is all worth the risk. You need to do chiplets because it's the way the industry is going. But you're right, it it is risky, it's still new. And especially if you're in a you know small or medium-sized organization, it's a significant investment. And I would say, aside from the technical risk right now, there's also supply chain risk. And you have to consider this very early on because right now the manufacturing for two and a half D and you know fan out integration, interposer, is very concentrated in a few players. And access to that for manufacturing is not always guaranteed, or especially if you're a smaller player, it can be hard to hard to even start an engagement there. So I would say there's supply chain risk, and that's aside from you know geopolitics or things like that, just in the structure of the market right now. And our our company is set up to try to help this problem. You know, we're spreading advanced packaging technology to the other players in the industry. But as it stands today, um, you have you have to pick out of a few players. Now, another risk I would say is a, a long-term roadmap risk. So we're at a we're at a point in time where the technology is moving so fast that I would say if you're trying to define, for example, a chiplet interface that's going to last years, allow you to plug and mix and match different chiplets, you know, for different products over years, it, I don't know if it's mature enough to uh, to define that roadmap with certainty at this point. I think you know a year or two out maybe, but uh, things are moving so fast that you might find yourself in a corner quickly. So I'd say, aside from you know the design considerations and, and the specific technical risks. You really have to look at uh, your supply chain, uh, your partnerships in your supply chain, and really gauge gauge how certain you are about that. Yeah, supply chain, good point. Uh, what about you, Tony? What are the risks? Yeah, I, I think Safe talked a lot of uh, a lot about the technical risks, and uh, and and Craig also brought up some good good risks uh, for supply chain. Um, Anything new is risky, and you know, essentially, in in these advanced packaging flows, everything is new. So historically, the way risk is, at least technical risk, is mitigated uh, is primarily through simulation, right? Uh, it's just the the cost of making a mistake is is prohibitive right so so in the pcb world yeah there is cost if you make a mistake there uh in the chip world you know you you don't make mistakes so you simulate 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 and and i think those technologies are mature so you know the risk has been mitigated but it, it's still there uh since all of these tools are and workflows are new the risk is much higher um, so, so that's why it really is necessary to have the tools in place and you really need to simulate everything. So, um, in a traditional LASIK, um, if you have a pre-characterized package and you have a single die, um, 
the the thermal risk i mean is is pretty low but when you have multiple chips inside of the package uh, you have you know um, thermal coupling so that that's a new risk um, you, you're not going to be able to to mitigate that through a test chip or you know maybe you can but if you have to redesign that's very painful so so doing um you know as much simulation as possible and more simulation it has to be done otherwise the the risk uh, you, you'll never succeed um but even as you're decomposing your system right it's you have so many choices to make um what technology for the for each of the chiplets how do i partition the chiplets what packaging technology um silicon you know what what interfaces so so those are all a lot of different decisions that need to be made and it's really not obvious um you know what what recipe of, of those decisions is best for your product the the risk is in picking the wrong microarchitecture so if you go down a path um you know and you rely on just simulating after you've done the design um you know the the cost of having to redesign is is a is a financial risk and and uh, that that could be enough to kill a program so doing some early predictive analysis so so making some intelligent decisions and again these are decisions that need to be made through multiple design teams your your system architects you know they understand how the functionality works so they can really come up with some good recommendations of how to split the function in different chiplets but they don't know anything about packaging technology you know they don't know about um you know uh, signal and power integrity analysis so so you know doing some early floor planning doing some some quick and dirty power analysis thermal analysis can can help provide some of that feedback uh, when you're to to the uh, to the team that's defining this chiplet up front and and picking the right architecture and, and i'd say the 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 risk in picking a bad architecture is very high financially it, it could kill the entire program so so that's an important thing supply supply chain is is another very valid risk so uh, again if there are chiplets out in the marketplace i think hbms are are pretty prevalent uh, but but you know there are supply uh, supply chain issues with that but there's only a handful of providers so getting visibility in, into the supply chain um that that's something that you know, we we are going to need uh, tools to to facilitate a market system that that will allow um, designers to to have some visibility into some of those reusable um, chiplets or you know availability of uh, um, you know silicon technology, organic technology, um, right? Because it it may take three years to to uh, to uh, you know do one of these complex designs and you know if there's new interfaces coming out or you know there's supply chain issues um you know you, you need to be aware of those up front and and then have a contingency plan so maybe you build in for uh multi-sourcing some of the areas where you think there there might be some challenges right oh, i agree completely so final question gentlemen um Future of chiplets. Uh, where where do you see this going, uh, Tony? Let's just stick with you. Yeah, well, we're we're very early in the cycle, and um, I I think uh, short term we're going to see broader adoption 
of, of two and a half D technologies. Uh, hopefully we'll get some of these standards in place so we can get, uh, um, you know, better, better workflows in place to, to make these things more feasible. So I, I think from a two and a half D perspective, you know, there'll be some cost reductions in broader adoption. 3D, uh, really there, there are tremendous advantages of 3D, but that technology at least from a tool uh, uh, perspective, is still out there to, uh, two to three years. But but I do expect to see once those tools mature, uh, you really have the ability to take a large subsystem, if you will, and partition that into multiple chips at, uh, chiplets and essentially uh, make that an advanced place around problem. So so the tool will will deal with a lot of these timing issues, power issues, issues and and even thermal issues need to be considered uh so so there will be more automation uh to do some of those advanced 3d packages um but it's 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 probably a good you know two two to five years before those uh, tools tools are mature enough uh for general use and i don't see that necessarily replacing two and a half d because you do have some practical limitations of of how many chips you can stack uh, primarily due to thermal considerations because that heat rises so you have to manage that carefully so i do expect to see um you know today we're seeing two and a half d designs but it's really just an hbm memory and a chip but i i do expect to see multiple 3d chips integrated on interposer type technology so i think there will be a combination um so you know i i, I think we'll see more and more of the pcb um, being replaced with uh, large interposers and multiple stack chiplets in there, and uh, it's really the you know some of the challenges from AI and advanced processing. I mean, we just can't feed that, and the only way we're going to be able to uh, meet those those product requirements and technical requirements is going to be very large multiple 3D stack die. So I think that's where the industry's headed. Um, that's going to be spearheaded by, you know, a lot of the large companies uh, with with uh, deep pockets. But I do see in the short shorter term, broader adoption at two and a half D. Great, Craig, crystal ball. What are the future <laughs> of chiplets? Well, I make no claim to have a crystal ball, but I, I will say I've been to enough conferences and sat through enough introductions that start with Moore's law and this constant scaling that. I've been tempted multiple times to say that, well, we need a new law for the chiplet era, that we'll see a doubling of the number of chiplets in a single package every two years or whatever time frame have you. And that's what we can all agree on at the beginning of every talk from now on. Um, so I, that's partially in jest, but I, I do really think that we will see a exponential scaling and the number of pieces of silicon from disparate sources that we can integrate together, especially as the interconnect technologies continue to scale. I mean, we're already looking at on a fan out wafer level or panel level process going below micron. So even on the 0.5 micron lines. So that's, that's beyond traditional packaging uh, to interconnect. So one, once we get small enough, you know, maybe toward the end of this decade, be interesting what to see what comes after chiplets but uh in the in the meantime i think we'll see continued adoption on the at the big players 
uh, right? It's kind of like um, very high density PCB technology. Uh, like if you look at an iPhone motherboard today, uh, every part on there is custom. But if you look at another circuit board, you know, uh, some consumer gadget, you'll find many off the shelf parts on a, uh, you know, PCB that can be sourced from multiple suppliers. For that Lego block ecosystem to happen, I'm in the opinion that we actually, we have to drive the cost down first. So the cost of integrating into an FD has to be lower first, and there have to be more players in the ecosystem. Uh, just like uh, PCB integration even was more expensive decades ago, uh, right now package integration is still at that higher price point. And we'll see a broader ecosystem once that goes down, and we'll be relying on technological pro progress to make that happen, um, but it's still a few years off. But in the meantime, may the chiplets multiply. How many years, Craig? Give me a number. Uh, I'm going to stake it on, you know what, three. We'll go every three years. Okay. How about you, Safe? Future of chiplets. Okay, so I think that um, chiplets, as we see now, is 2.5D and, and 3D. And we actually had MCMs many years ago, right, multi-chip modules. Uh, which is, um, you know, so there's always this aggregation of, uh, you know, chips um, that we need for different functions. Now, in terms of the future, I think it's going to be driven, um, you know, and both Craig and uh, uh, Tony hinted on this, it's going to be driven by the larger companies with deep pockets that have a need for chiplets. Okay, and what does that, what does that mean? It, it means that, you know, um, there's a there's as uh, Craig was mentioning there is a concern about you know how much volume so what the supply chain is, chain uh, uh, can do for chiplets um, the cost associated with it so it does make sense that the larger companies that really need it are going to kind of drive where this goes um, and the larger company and especially if you have very large SOCs where you can't fill, fit it in one reticle size, you definitely need to go to chiplets, you don't have an option. So the way I see it is um, there's gonna be standards that are continuing to evolve uh, with respect to chiplets. Uh, the larger companies are gonna drive the direction along with the foundries. Um, and then at a certain point, and then the tools in parallel to that are going to develop uh, so that it can actually uh, have some kind of standardized design kit for chiplets. And so probably in, in the next probably three to five years is kind of where I see this all coming together and it, it being available to a larger audience than just the larger companies. Yeah, I agree. It's interesting that you met the, mentioned the foundries. You know, they have an ecosystem now for silicon-proven IP, and I think they're just going to have to develop a similar ecosystem for silicon-proven chiplets, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank you for your time. Great conversation. And uh, it's a pleasure to meet you all. Likewise. Thank you. Same here. Thank you very much. That concludes our podcast. Thank you all for listening and have a great day.